Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to More Than Amused Podcast. My name is Sadie. And I'm Stani. And hello. Hello. I selfishly have been very excited to record today because <laughs> last weekend, Stani went to the Eras tour. And with the exception of one text about what her surprise song was, I have not talked to her about it yet <laughs> because I knew we were going to record and I would get to ask about it. So, Stani, how was the Eras tour? Oh my gosh, Sadie. Like, ah! I cannot even like fully describe how incredible it was. So I went with my other friend, Sadie. For everyone who doesn't know, I have two best friends named Sadie. One lives in Utah and then you, of course, live in Nashville. Here we are. But yes. I went with her and her husband and he's not like a huge Taylor Swift fan. Like, of course, like he likes, you know. The classics. Like, yeah, yeah. The music that comes on. He listens to it a lot because of his wife. But even he was like, that was hands down the best concert I've ever been to. And he's like, and I don't even love her music that much, but like just the whole production of it all. Mm -hmm. Just, oh my gosh, she thought of every single little detail. Ah, it was yeah. good. Yes, it was amazing. Our seats weren't like phenomenal. They were like good for like seeing Taylor. Mm -hmm. Like, even though she was, like, this big. <laughs> Very small. Yeah. yeah. But we had, like, three screens within our view. And because she does so much of her concert out on the bridge part of the stage, mm -hmm. we actually saw, like, quite a bit of her and quite a bit of the stuff. The only disappointment was, like, for Evermore and Folklore, she goes up closer into the stage area. Oh, and yeah. And the sets are gorgeous. But everything they did for the screens, they focused just on her face. So we didn't get to see like a lot of the production. And like, I love that stuff, you know, like the set design, yeah. the stage design, like kind of wanted to see a little bit more of that. So immediately after we were like, let's find more tickets. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Where are you trying to go? Again? I don't know. We're like California or Washington. Yeah. I was thinking about trying to get tickets to the LA shows. Because she has Could a lot of them. Fun. So it's like maybe, but they're so expensive. And I feel like the prices are just going to rise because everyone's yeah. talking about how amazing this concert is. Like the anyway, only chance that they'll drop is like the weekend of. And at that point, it's maybe too late yeah, to plan. Yeah. So we're going to see, like I would pay double what I paid, but I don't know if I can do more than that. I paid ah. like $270. You'd pay double that to see it yeah. again. And okay. I think it's okay. worth it. Like anyone out there who spent it. like $1,000 on tickets, like it's worth it. I'm a little bit nervous because I'm on the side. I'm in the lower bowl, but I am like on the side kind of. Yeah. But it doesn't say obstructed view. It's like we're Ours in a section right either. before, but I feel yeah. like it might be a little obstructed. You'll probably have about the same view as us then. And I will say mm -hmm. like there was nothing wrong with it. It was just like not completely satisfying. Like I yeah, feel like I missed Yeah, I wish I could have had like a straight on yeah. ticket, but... 
Oh, because wow. oh my gosh, she has so many Easter eggs. Like even in the show, like look what you made me do. Her background yeah. dancers are all dressed up as a different era. Era, mm-hmm. but she has all of them in cages except for the ones she owns. So like folklore, Evermore, and Lover are all like on the stage and then throughout the thing like she releases the ones that she's done Taylor versions of it was so like I was just like that is clever Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's so clever and then your surprise songs were cowboy like me yes with Marcus Mumford that is so yeah oh my gosh first guest of the tour when I saw that on Twitter I just immediately was like I told like so many friends like my friend is there my friend is there like (laughs) and they were all just like that's so amazing I know it was so friend is there great we died because we just didn't believe it was actually gonna happen uh-huh. and you know i love evermore i love I, that's what evermore. i i was like stonies and evermore <laughs> girly this is perfect yes and then she also played white horse she talked about awesome. how she wanted something that went with cowboy like so that's like, so perfect white horse and it was beautiful that's and then you get a one new one and an songs. old one mm-hmm. ah, so it was so good amazing. the stage diving too holy cow oh my gosh i've seen the videos of the stage diving <laughs> it's like how what? Did you have to practice that to not like hit your head but then i've like seen parts where apparently the opening's bigger than we think it is but like yeah but still I that know. looks horrifying if i was doing that i would like go down there and like check multiple times to be like okay they didn't forget to like set the (laughs) ball pit or whatever she's diving into a mattress i don't know it's gotta be like very Um, soft because like you land weird hopefully she's okay it's incredible i did see that she did death by a thousand cuts very recently though and i was a little last night she did death by a thousand cuts and clean yeah those are good ones those would have been but she's doing death by a thousand cuts again yes because she messed it up yeah. Oh my gosh. No, I that's so cool that Marcus Mumford was there. For it your was show. so great. He has an incredible voice. And I did you know so. that they did like the studio sessions for Evermore and Folklore at his house? Like a lot of them? No, I did not know that. Yeah, I think particularly for Evermore. And this was fun. So she's talking about how she's like driving past fields of sheep to go to this house that's you know, in the middle of nowhere. And that's why she was inspired. She was like, yeah, that drive inspired the lakes in that song. And then I realized Marcus Mumford's studio is in the Lake District of England, which we've talked about before because Beatrix Potter retired there and was a sheep farmer. So I was like, how cute is it that Taylor Swift is driving out past where all these like poets went and everything Mm -hmm. where Beatrix Potter lived and was a sheep farmer to go record Evermore. Yeah, that's nice. That's very, very nice. (laughs) It's very cute. And that they had to do it during quarantine because no studios were open, but he had Mm -hmm. a home studio. Well, we yeah. love a Taylor Swift tie-in to More Than Amused, so thank <laughs> you do. for that, Miss Swift. <laughs> no, I was like, that is so cute. She's just out in the Lake District recording Evermore. It mm-hmm. warmed my heart. <laughs> I love that. Well, I still have a month until I'm going to the Ares tour, May 5th. I know, so that's so exciting. So. I am very excited. Anyway, I could continue well, talking about every moment of this Thank you for the report. <laughs> Sorry if there's any non-Swifty <laughs> listening, but maybe that convinced you to go. <laughs> I honestly, I think anyone would enjoy it. Yeah. If you're going with a friend or a significant other who's a huge Taylor Swift fan and you're kind of like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Like Like you'll have a good time. I promise you'll enjoy it. Yeah. I love that. Amazing. Well, then to segue into what we're here to do today, who (laughs) are we learning about? We are talking about Edmonia Lewis. Cool. Yes. She's a sculptor, which we haven't done in quite a while. And I'm 
really excited to talk about her. She has a very rich history. That's very exciting. So Mary Edmonia Lewis, her other name is also Wildfire. She was born on July 4th in 1844. Very patriotic. Very American, yes. (laughs) And she was an American sculptor. And she actually had mixed heritage that was both African-American and Native American. Her tribe is... I hope I say this right, guys. I Google every time, but like... No, I feel... My American accent, you know. It's Miss Asagua Ojibwe. So that's the tribe. But she was born in upstate New York, and actually she was born free, which was very rare around that time period and everything. And she ended up working for most of her career actually in Rome. So very similar to a lot of other artists we covered because of how prejudiced the United States was. Mm -hmm. They went to Europe and had a more prominent and sometimes way more successful career there. Can't really blame them. (laughs) No. She was the first African-American and Native American sculptor to achieve national and then international prominence. And I'd say to this day, she's probably one of the most well-known Native American artists that there is. Cool. She's both. But yeah, her prominence started during the Civil War. And then she ended that by being listed as one of the 100 greatest African Americans on a 2002 list Hmm. and continues to be one of the most prominent people like I've talked about. So a little state of the arts here. Her sculptural style is known as neoclassical. Cool. And so I ended up diving a little bit into like, what are the different sculpture styles? Because I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know the differences. <laughs> yeah. We use, I'm like, oh, neoclassical. Don't <laughs> like, know what that cool. means. Yeah. So there's quite a few, actually. I'm not going to like talk about all of them in depth. But first it starts out with like Hellenistic, which is apparently like ancient Greece. It's really, really old. I think I'm allowed to say ancient at this point. I could be wrong. For reference, Sally got (laughs) torn apart in a reel recently because she referred to something as ancient that wasn't ancient and people had a... People were upset. Yeah. This is 1,600 <laughs> years old. Am I allowed to say ancient? I think we can say ancient at this point. Okay. Who knows? But it's known mainly for like idealized but naturalistic representations of people and deities. So they did a lot of like Greek gods, you know, like the muses, stuff like that. Like we have some remaining art from that time period, but it's really old. It's old. And then of course right after that came Roman sculpture. Greek and Roman are very tied together. Rome was very heavily influenced by the Greeks, but they changed things up and did a lot more historical events and like details of historical events. So they would still have people, but it would be depicting like a story rather than just like the person standing there being beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then they move into like equestrian sculpture basically people just started sculpting a lot of horses <laughs> and so cool. that gets its whole own genre it's really expensive forms of sculpture if you want to think of like an example you can google the statue of marcus aurelius by i think it's donatello but it's like a guy on a horse in full armor and the horse is like in movement that's complicated requires a lot more work than just a person yeah so it gets its own then there's like architectural sculpture reliefs and carvings which includes like cathedrals abbeys churches you know like all the stuff that goes in hand in hand with doing that then you move into like high renaissance sculpture with like michelangelo leonardo da vinci donatello you know 
the names mm-hmm. we're all familiar with. Yeah. Think of the David and all of those. Then you've got Mannerist sculpture, which is more like an exaggerated form of the before mentioned. So it would be like the head of Medusa, where it's just like a little bit more exaggerated than like an actual representation of the person. And then you move into the Baroque era, where they have focused a lot more on like a movement within the sculpture. So like people bending and twisting and like in very Mm -hmm. precarious positions that no human could really accomplish if they weren't frozen in stone. And then neoclassical is right after that. So this is like a return to simplicity. It was kind of a return to the early days of Greek and Roman art. So like a call back to them. Cool. So it doesn't classify as Greek and Roman art because it wasn't made within that time period, but it is like a return to it. And then, of course, modernist happens after that. So for a little like context, Camille Claudel's is figurative, which I think falls mm. within mannerism. Cool. But also a little bit more modernist. And then Augusta Savage is a little different because hers is during a different time period. Let's see what they classified her as. They just said Harlem Renaissance. So I don't know what made it. I think it was because it was a lot more focused on like the black experience that that falls into its own category. category. Anyway, sculpture is very complicated. I don't think I understand very much of it at all. I can't even (laughs) fathom how someone would create that. Right? Yeah. I know. And you always hear like the famous quotes of being like, I could see the person trapped in the stone and like my goal was to free them. It's just like, what the heck? Whoa. I've never never. looked at a rock and been like, that's the David. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Same. (laughs) It's just fascinating to me. And it's such an expensive art form. Like, yes, this is not a cheap thing to get into if you're going to have a hobby. (laughs) No. Oh, my gosh. Like, painting is way less expensive than that. Anyway, so hers is neoclassical. So think very like Greek, Roman sculptures. Makes sense, especially with the time she spent in Rome. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about her art style and everything as we move forward. The other part I also wanted to talk about is the tribe that she is descended from. The Mississauga Ojibwe tribe. So they're actually primarily Canadian from what I could find. Kind of like the Inuit tribe that we covered cool. before with Ashavak Kenajoak. But they have a really interesting story. So they had like a place they called the second stopping place that was near Niagara Falls, which we know is on the Canadian-American border. And then they migrated along the shores of Lake Erie to what is southern Michigan. And then they said they became lost both physically and spiritually. Mm -hmm. And so then they migrated along the northern route and then ended up around the Mississauga River. And then formed like a council there and called it the third stopping place. And that became like their center. But then some of them also migrated near Detroit to the fourth stopping place. The history seems like a little confused. And I think that's where it comes in with the whole like physically and spiritually lost. And along with that, they also didn't even go by Mississauga. They just started being called that because Mm. they were near the river and everyone else started calling them regular speakers of the Great River Mouth. And so they started going by that, which is interesting that like (laughs) they kind of accepted this title that was given to them where a lot of other people like fight against that like we talked about how Eskimo is like a derogatory Mm -hmm. term that's now being like fitna 
fought against by the Inuit people, but then like they completely adopted it. So it's just really interesting. They're up there with a ton of other tribes and kind of the biggest scandal is right after the end of the American Revolution, the British crown purchased land from them that encompassed most of like southern Ontario today. Okay. And they were going to like do this to fulfill promises that they made to the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy for their allied support in the war. So like here we're buying this land, we're going to give it to them, you know, we'll pay you for it, it'll mm-hmm. all work out. But they didn't fulfill their promise, which, wow, surprising. <laughs> I know. I'm like, unfortunately, and not surprising. But Are we shocked? No, yeah. we're not. Stealing land from Native people? What? Yeah, that <laughs> never happens. <laughs> There's no historical record of that ever happening. Yeah, so just super irritating. But in the 20th century, the Canadian government actually awarded the tribes nearly $145 million in settlement of this land claim because basically... They took the land. They didn't pay the money. Wow. Um, So now they actually like paid them back, which I guess is good, but it it took them a while. (laughs) Yeah, it shouldn't have happened in the first place, but okay. Yeah, it sounds like from the beginning of the 19th century, they were seeking compensation for the land granted Mm -hmm. to them, but then given to other people. And then it took them two more centuries before they were (laughs) given it. So good for them. But yeah, it was kind of a confusing history. Like there's been a lot of other tribes we've talked about where I feel like I've been able to get like a clearer idea of like where they were settled, Mm -hmm. kind of more of their traditions and everything. It's not the case with these ones. And if anyone has any resources to like find out more about that, like reach out so we can link them. Because yeah, I was... I was a little confused, <laughs> but yeah. I think it goes back to that very, like, it sounds like they were a very nomadic people for a really long time, and some things just got lost within, like, migration and then immigration of other people into their areas and all sorts mm-hmm. of other things. So, anyway, but that's, like, a little bit about all of that, and then we'll move in to Lewis's life. Yay! So, like, every person I feel like I've covered lately... They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, reliable information is limited because she didn't always tell the truth. Ah, yep. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They said basically the major problem was that she was inconsistent in her interviews and preferred to present herself as an exotic product of like a childhood spent roaming in forests with her mother's people rather than some documents they found that were a little bit to the contrary. So I guess like, I don't know. I don't want to say take it with a grain of salt because it's like it's her experience. Yeah. But like I think she might have been leaning into like the personal branding of being like, a Native American in a very, like, interesting time in America. Which, fair. I know. I'm like, I don't really blame you. Like, if everyone's going to throw you in a box like that and you want to capitalize off of it, then, like, okay. Go for it. Yeah. But she was born near Albany, New York, and then most of her girlhood was apparently spent in Newark, New Jersey. Her mother was, like I said, half African American, half Mississauga Ojibwe and then she was also a weaver and a craftswoman. We don't know who her father was. There's two different men that they believe were her father. They're both African-American men. One is Samuel Lewis who was a valet or like a gentleman's servant not like a valet now but like Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah but a fancy valet for some rich guy and then the other one they believe was Robert Benjamin Lewis who was like a writer. Her half-brother said that 
their father was a West Indian Frenchman. Don't know if either of those guys have any ties to that. So it's just kind of like a mystery, which also is sadly not extremely shocking. By the time Lewis reached the age of nine, both her mother and then both of the men that they suspect to be her father had passed away. So her two maternal aunts ended up adopting her and her half-older brother, Samuel. And her half-brother was born to a father of the same name and then his first wife in Haiti and then came to the United States and then joined up with them. Confusing, like I said. I'm a little lost on a lot of the history of this, which I think is why they say a lot of it take could it with be. Yeah. yeah. He ended up becoming a barber at age 12, which is a really young time to start a career, but mm-hmm. good for him, I guess. They lived with their aunts near Niagara Falls, New York, for about four years. They sold a lot of Ojibwe baskets and other items like moccasins, embroidered blouses, and others to tourists visiting Niagara Falls, Toronto, and Buffalo. I gotta say, that's like a good tourist destination to be in if you're gonna pick somewhere. Like, yeah. Niagara Falls. Sounds yeah, great. <laughs> pretty great. During this time, she went by her Native American name, Wildfire, and her brother was called Sunshine. And then in 1852, Samuel ended up leaving for San Francisco, California, and left her in the care of Captain S.R. Mills. And then because her brother actually ended up making a fortune in the California gold rush, which he's got to be one of the rare few that actually did. Yeah, wow. Like, what are the chances of that? Not very high. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he made a fortune, so he was able to leave her in the care of this captain. She ended up being extremely economically privileged throughout the rest of her childhood and early teenage years. Her brother basically provided for everything that she could want like gave her really good life. She was in like a pre-college program at a Baptist abolitionist school. She also like had a really great education. She said she left the school after three years because she was too wild. Here's a quote from her that says, until I was 12 years old, I led this wandering life, fishing, swimming, and making moccasins. I was then sent to school for three years, but I was declared to be wild and they could do nothing with me. However, they did look up like her academic record because, Mm -hmm. you know, the school had it. And her grades and conduct and attendance were all exemplary. (laughs) And she was taught in like Latin, French, grammar, arithmetic, drawing, composition, and public speaking. And she had like phenomenal grades and like wonderful marks about her attitude and everything okay. so i'm like but i mean like her native american name was wildfire so like i think you can be wild and like still totally do well in school yeah, but absolutely. i think the idea that they were like we can't do anything with you you're wild we're kicking you out it's completely false maybe not true like you know, she was doing just fine yeah yeah that's funny so yeah like she had a really good education when she was about 15 her brother and some abolitionists sent her to Oberlin, Ohio, where she went to a preparatory school for the whole three years and then entered Oberlin Collegiate Institute, which is now like Oberlin College. It was like one of the only and first U.S. higher learning institutions that allowed women and people of different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So they were just like being super inclusive, which is good because, you know, she wouldn't have been able to attend a lot of others at the time. And their whole thing was like to give young ladies facilities for the thorough mental discipline and special training, which will qualify them for teaching and other duties of their sphere. Which, in my opinion, is a very long and complicated way to really say nothing at all. That's fair. (laughs) Like, we're going to teach people. Okay. (laughs) But at this time, she ended up changing her name to Mary Edmonia Lewis. 
and then began to study art. She boarded with a Reverend John Keep and his wife, and then she was only one of 30 students of color within the whole population of a thousand students. Keep was white, but he was an avid abolitionist and a spokesperson for coeducation, which if you don't know, was a whole thing at the time where abolitionists believed that they should just immediately desegregate everything. Mm-hmm. Just like do it. It doesn't have yeah. to be like, you know, trickled out or like done in different things. Just like make everyone equal, which was extremely radical. Mm. <laughs> she talked later about how she was subject to daily racism and discrimination, which is sad for such an inclusive college. Mm-hmm. But of course, like the students didn't have to be like yeah. inclusive to go there. And then she also talked about how she and the other female students were rarely given the opportunity to participate in the classroom or speak at public meetings. This gets into the whole thing where like, I feel like hers, it's even like three layers where it's like you have regular sexism that we talk about with everyone mm-hmm. that we cover. And then you add racism, which we talk about with a lot of the people we cover. But then mm-hmm. you also add like the Native American racism on top of that. Yeah. And like the complete erasure of like their culture and traditions and everything else that like society does. So she's got like a lot going against her. I'm sure it was not easy at all to Mm -mm. be in college with a bunch of white kids and like be so different. So there was this incident that happened in the winter of 1862. So this was right after the start of the US Civil War to like put it in perspective. And there was this plan where like three women, including Lewis, who were all boarding in Keep's home, planned to go sleigh riding with some young men later in the day. Before sleighing, that sounds weird. Before going sleigh riding, I'll say that. Before sleighing. (laughs) That's what it says. I'm like, huh. Lewis served her friends a drink of spiced wine. And shortly after, the two friends fell severely ill. The doctors examined them and then were like, they've been poisoned. Which it was like, supposedly this aphrodisiac reputed aphrodisiac because like our aphrodisiacs real called cantharides do you hear that yeah cantharides it's also known as spanish fly it's also like a veterinarian medicine diuretic they use it to like treat warts okay and stuff like that obviously it's not supposed to be ingested it's extremely toxic which makes it kind of stupid that it's considered an aphrodisiac because not supposed to have it but days later the women were like oh you're fine you'll recover and authorities initially took no action against it but of course Hmm. gossip spread people started talking about it and because the town wasn't as progressive as the college when lewis was walking home alone one night she was dragged into an open field by unknown assailants badly beaten and left for dead. So she gets attacked, basically left for dead, and then they arrest her and charge her with poisoning her friends. There was a lawyer, John Mercer Langston, who was actually alumni of Oberlin College, and he was the first African-American lawyer in Ohio. He represented her during her trial, and although a lot of witnesses spoke against her and she didn't testify, he ended up being able to move successfully to have the charges dismissed because there were no analysis of the contents of the victim's stomachs. And so okay. therefore, there's no evidence of poisoning. Like if you can't actually prove that there was poison in their stomach, then you can't prove that they were poisoned. That they're true. Yeah. However, of course, this didn't make the rest of her college career 
successful as you can imagine. She spent a lot of time in isolation with a ton of prejudice. She was accused of like so many things after that. Like a year after the poisoning trial, she was accused of stealing artists' materials. Once again, acquitted from lack of evidence. Then they like charged her again with aiding and embedding a burglary. And at this point, she's like, if you're just going to throw charges my way, I'm done. And she ended up leaving. Oh my God. Um, But a lot of other reports say that it wasn't necessarily her choice completely to leave, that she was forbidden from registering for her last term, which left her unable to graduate. Oh. Yeah. And actually, this is like a nice little gesture of goodwill. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, oh, it's nice that they did that. But then other times I'm kind of like, this is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. In 2022, she was awarded a degree posthumously by Oberlin. Okay, so well you know what i mean like nice gesture yeah. i guess but like maybe a little bit too late yeah in 2022 after she's already dead like mm. <laughs> yeah i was like do you think she cares like here's your degree that we didn't let yeah. you have that we didn't give you at the time because of everything so i don't know sometimes like i'm sure they like good intentions with the people on the school board who are like hey like found this story about it we should do something like we should do something and i think it is really good intentions it just feels a little hollow especially after like all those years definitely so after the whole incident with college she ended up moving to boston And while there, she began to pursue her career as a sculptor. She told a story about encountering a statue of Benjamin Franklin in Boston and said that she didn't know what it was or what to call it, but wanted to make a stone man herself. With her education, I think she probably knew what a sculpture was. Yeah. (laughs) But but I believe the whole thing of like seeing a statue and then being like, I want to do that. That's really cool. So the Keeps that she'd been boarding with wrote an introduction of her on her behalf to an abolitionist, William Lord Garrison in Boston. And he introduced her to established sculptures in the area, as well as like writers who publicized her in the abolitionist press. It sounds like the abolitionists play like a really big role in her career. Like they were just big advocates for her. They would introduce her to people, they would board. And what ended up being really helpful is three male sculptors refused to instruct her of course, before she was introduced to a moderately successful sculptor named Edward Augustus Brackett. And he actually specialized in marble portrait busts. And his clients were some of the most important abolitionists of the day. So because Mm. he works for a lot of abolitionists and they're the ones doing all these introductions, letters of recommendations, like, yeah, he was able to hire her. So what he would do is he would lend her fragments of sculptures and have her copy them in clay, and then he would critique them, which honestly sounds like a good way to learn sculpture. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's the correct way, but (laughs) sounds good to me. And then under his tutelage, she was able to craft her own sculpting tools and then sell her first piece, which was this sculpture of a woman's hand, and she sold it for $8. I should look up the conversion rate on that. I'm always curious on these. $197. There we go. Yeah, so not bad. And then a fellow sculptor, Anne Whitney, wrote in a letter to her sister that Lewis's relationship with her instructor did not end amicably, but didn't disclose the reason for the split. Hmm, interesting. No idea what happened there. But shortly after, she ended up opening a studio to the public with her first solo exhibition in 1864. As you can imagine, she was really inspired by the lives of abolitionists and Civil War heroes. Makes perfect sense. And so a lot of her subjects for sculpture in her early career were famous abolitionists of the day. 
including like John Brown, Colonel Robert Goldshaw, and Union Colonel Shaw, who was the commander of an African-American Civil War regiment from Massachusetts, which is really cool. I don't remember learning about them in school. Yeah, I don't I don't either. Education? Yeah. Doing great. <laughs> but she was inspired to create a bust of his likeness. And the Shaw family was so impressed that they ended up purchasing it from her. And then she made plaster cast reproductions and sold 100 of them at $15 a piece. Wow. Yeah. Which is a very good little income there, especially because that's about $350 today. Oh, yeah. One. So quite a good little fortune from some busts. This is the money that would allow her to eventually move to Rome. This is why I feel like inflation is crazy because you're like, $15 a piece, 100 of them. Okay. You know, like, (laughs) yeah, like $1,500, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that was enough to go to Rome. But then when you look at it and you're like, oh, no, it was about like 350 something dollars per one. It's like, okay, yeah, okay, probably yeah. go to Rome. <laughs> With that money, yes. <laughs> What's cool is there was actually a poet, Anna Quincy Watterson, who wrote a poem about Lewis and Shaw and this statue. I'm going to read it. The poem is called Edmonia Lewis, and it's subtitled The Young Colored Woman Who Successfully Modeled the Bust of Colonel Shaw. Hmm. So it says, She hath wrought well with her unpracticed hand, the mirror of her thought reflected clear. This youthful hero martyr of our land, with touch harmonious she has molded here. A memory and a prophecy both dear, the memory of one who was so pure, that God gave him and only what only can belong to an unsullied soul, the right to be a leader for all time and freedom's chivalry. The prophecy of that wide, wholesome cure for foul distrust and bitter, cruel wrong, which he did give his life up to secure. It is fitting that a daughter of the race whose chains are breaking should receive a gift. So rare as genius, neither power nor place, fashion or wealth, pride, custom, caste, nor hue, can agronomally arrogantly wow okay this is written in really bad writing <laughs> okay can, cool. can arrogantly claim what god doth lift above these chances and bestows on few yeah it's like a nice little ode to them both mm-hmm. from 1864 to 1871 she was written about or interviewed by lydia mary child elizabeth peabody annie quincy watterson and laura curtis bullard who were all very important women in the Boston and New York abolitionist circles. And because of this, articles about her started appearing in all of these abolitionist journals, including like Broken Fetter, the Christian Register, and the Independent. And she started to gather like a really good reputation in Boston. And it's said that she wasn't opposed to the coverage she received. She wasn't about to turn down monetary aid, but she didn't appreciate that there was like a lot of false praise Hmm. for her. She knew that a lot of them didn't really appreciate her art but just saw her as an opportunity to show support for human rights Uh, which I guess you know I could see that being a thing where you're like I don't want to be a charity case yeah but you know she was receiving a lot of funding and attention for her work so that was helpful and it allowed her to go on to create medallion portraits of John Brown William Lloyd Garrison and also some busts of the characters from Henry Wadsworth's Longfellow poem of the Song of Hiawatha, Hmm. which he actually drew from an Ojibwe legend. Cool. Very fitting with her heritage and everything. So then she decided to move to Rome. Her works were doing really well in Boston. She was gaining some popularity like we talked about. And so in 1866, 
she decided to move to Rome. She said in a quote, I was particularly driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. And this quote is like jarring to me. It says the land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. Wow. Just that's the perfect way to put it. The land of liberty mm-hmm. <laughs> had no room for a colored sculptor. That's just sad. Yeah. Anyway, her passport actually, I think like they used it also as a way to like justify a travel visa at the time because her passport had written on it, Miss Edmonia Lewis is a black girl sent by subscription to Italy having displayed great talents as a sculptor. I think it was also like a recommendation kind of thing. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, which we don't do that anymore, but I think it's kind of the visa process from what I can tell. So while there, there was an established sculptor named Hiram Powers who allowed her to work in the studio, and she continued to work there for quite a long time. She got professional support from Charlotte Cushman, who was a Boston actress and also was like a pivotal figure for sculptors in Rome. And then also Maria Weston Chapman, who is a dedicated worker for the anti-slavery cause. She spent a lot of time there. Yeah. <laughs> Most of her adult career was in Rome because, you know, like Italy had less racism. So it allowed her to succeed more. Yeah. And it allowed her also to have like social, spiritual and artistic freedom. Can't really beat that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's Catholic. Rome, great place to be if you're Catholic. Yeah. It allowed her to be have like both spiritual and physical closeness to her faith whereas in america they had to rely on abolitionist patronage so because not all Mm. churches were desegregated you could only go to the ones that were which allowed it to be like limited in faith as i mentioned before she went to like a baptist school Mm -hmm. so she was allowed to be catholic in rome and she also began to sculpt in marble and working in the neoclassical manner I talked about. She also focused a lot, as you can imagine, on Black and American Indian people, and the surroundings of the classical world inspired her and influenced her work. She showed a lot of people in robes rather than contemporary clothing, which is very Roman Grecian esque. Mm-hmm. She also is known for always wearing a red cap in her studio, which all the pictures of her are black and white, duh. But like, <laughs> she has the little cap in them, and if you imagine them in red, like it. It is really cute. Yeah. (laughs) Like just a little red cap. Her face is bright, intelligent, and expressive. Her manners are childlike, simple, and most winning and pleasing. And she just did really well there. She was also unique in the way she approached sculpting. She insisted on enlarging her clay and wax models and marble herself rather than hiring native Italian sculptors to do it for her, which was really Mm -hmm. common at the time. I think one of the reasons she did this, though, they talked about how male sculptors were largely skeptical of the talent of female sculptors and accused Mm. them of not doing their own work. Which when you think of like Camille Claudel and everything, Mm -hmm. like that makes sense. Like her instructor was given so much credit for the work that she did. And so it kind of makes sense that she was like, I'm not going to let anyone else have their hands on this. And then it can be solely seen as mine. And that was like a pretty common thing for the women over there. There was another sculptor, Harriet Hosmer. And she also was known to do that. And then Lewis was also known to make sculptures before receiving commissions for them or to send unsolicited works to Boston patrons requesting that they raise funds for materials and shipping. So she would like send it and then be like, you owe me this much. Nice. (laughs) But I feel like if they like it, that's not a bad way to do things. While in Rome, she continued to express her African-American and Native American heritage. One of her famous works, Forever Free, 
depicted a powerful image of an African-American man and woman emerging from the bonds of slavery. She also has another one called The Arrow Maker, which shows a Native American father teaching his daughter how to make an arrow. And her work sold for quite a bit of money. She had two $50,000 commissions. That's a lot, even today's standards. $50,000 is a lot. And let's see, that was in 1873. I think that's a million dollars. Oh, what? (laughs) So it's a million two hundred and fifty three thousand five hundred dollars. So that's two million dollar commissions. She's doing very well for herself. (laughs) Yes. And there's a quote about her that said her newfound popularity made her studio a tourist destination. And she was able to have many major exhibitions among her rise to fame, including one in Chicago, Illinois and in Rome, of course. Amazing. Um, And then she was summoned to Peterborough, New York, to sculpt the wealthy abolitionist Jarrett Smith. And apparently he wasn't pleased with what she completed. But what it was was a sculptor of the clasped hands of Jarrett and his beloved wife, Anne. Which sounds very cute to me, but I guess he wanted something more politically prominent. I don't know. To kind of show like how popular she was, because like I feel like we can talk about it and be like, yeah, like $2 million commissions. And then people are like, okay, because I'm sure people do that all the time now. But to show like how popular she truly was is that in 1877, the former U.S. president Ulysses S. Grant mm-hmm. actually commissioned her to do his portrait. Wow. And he sat for her as a model and was very pleased with the finished piece. So that was like one of probably the most famous busts that she did. She also contributed a bust of another abolitionist senator, Charles Sumner, for an Atlanta exposition. However, in the 1880s, neoclassism started declining in popularity. She continued sculpting in marble and created a lot of altar pieces for like Catholic patrons, like a bust of Mm -hmm. Christ, like some other pieces that a lot of them they believe have been lost. They actually found the bust of Christ that she made in Scotland in 2015. Wow. Don't know how it got there. (laughs) And then she kind of disappears completely from history. We don't know anything about her later life and growing old. Interesting. What we do know is that she lived in Paris, ended up moving to London, England, and then passed away on September 17th, 1907 in an Hmm. infirmary. And according to her death certificate, the cause of her death was chronic kidney failure, which is also known as Bright's disease. And she was buried in the St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in London. There were a lot of theories at the time, like conspiracy theories, that she had died in Rome or that she had died in California and was buried in an unmarked grave in San Francisco for a really long time. Like they didn't know. But in 2017, very similar to a lot of other stories we've covered, a GoFundMe project by a town historian was successful. They were able to restore her grave and were able to bring it back, you know, or I guess not bring it back to its former glory because it doesn't sound like it had one. No, but actually give give it it glory. (laughs) And that's at the St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in London where she's buried. Cool. Something that's also like an interesting little note about her work is it's noted that because of her largely white audience if she ever did a portrait of a person and used her features like you know like a black woman's features or like a native american's features Mm -hmm. everyone would immediately assume it was self-portraiture oh and so in order to avoid this she gave a lot of her female figures european features and Mm. this i think just goes to show like how much she had to balance yeah her personal identity with like 
being able to be a successful artist at the time and how irritating that would be because like I don't know like I could draw a random white woman and everyone wouldn't immediately assume it's me it's you no no way (laughs) so it's like really stupid that that became the case of her she couldn't even depict other people of her race without it being accused of being a self-portrait and that would be really Mm -hmm. limiting in 2007 a scholar actually wrote of her and said, it's hard to overstate the visual incongruity of the black native female body, let alone the identity in a sculptor within the Roman colony. As the first black native sculpture of either sex to achieve international recognition within a Western sculptural tradition, Lewis was a symbolic and social anomaly within a dominantly white bourgeois and aristotic community. So that's a lot. A little bit about her personal life. She was never married. She has no known children. There is actually no definite information about her own romantic involvement with anyone. As you'll notice throughout her whole story, basically all I had was like things we have documents on and (laughs) people's witnesses of her or quotes from her from times she was interviewed and things that were published and preserved. And other than that, like there's nothing. There was like an engagement announced for her in 1873. Basically, all they said was that his fiance's skin color was the same as hers, but they didn't even give his name. Seems like a weird detail to include, in my opinion, but like, okay. Like I mentioned, her half-brother Samuel, who ended up funding a lot of her early education, he ended up settling in Montana and set up a barber shop there and did really well invested in commercial real estate, built his own home. It's actually still standing and ended up getting married and had a child. But their son, Samuel E. Lewis, ended up dying childless. So there's no continuation of their family line, which is sad, but he is buried in Bozeman there and apparently had like a really good relationship with the mayor because he was a pallbearer. Seems like he had like a really successful, albeit like quieter life than his sister. But, like, was a barber and lived a very good, successful, fulfilling life there. So, a few of her works. We'll sum these up quick. But we've got Forever Free, which is a sculpture from 1867. It's done in white marble and represents a man standing, staring up and raising his left arm into the air. Wrapped around his left wrist is a chain that it's not restraining him anymore. And to his right is a woman kneeling with her hands held in a prayer position with his hand on her shoulder. Of course, it's representing like black liberation, salvation, redemption, and the emancipation Mm -hmm. of the African-American slaves. It was actually taken, the title Forever Free, from President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. So beautiful, you know. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that's interesting is that a lot of modern scholars are like, well, the woman looks Eurocentric. But like I talked about before, she kind of had to in order yeah I think that it was her so that's annoying another thing is she also portrayed the woman as completely dressed while the man was partially dressed and it was just trying to draw attention away from the idea of african-american women being sexual figures which is mm-hmm. another problem another one that she did is hagar in 1875 this is a character from the old testament who's the handmaid or slave of abraham wife's sarah and she's the one who bears abraham's firstborn son ishmael 
you're familiar with the Bible. And then, so she has this piece done in white marble as well. She's standing as if about to walk on with her hands clasped in prayer and staring slightly up, but not straight across. And it was meant to symbolize, sim- <laughs> symbolize the African mother in the United States and the frequent sexual abuse of African-American women by white men, which I think that's like a very profound way to do that by using like a Bible story. Yeah. She also did, this is probably her most famous piece besides some of the other ones I mentioned. It's called The Death of Cleopatra. It's in the Smithsonian. So, oh, cool. Yeah, that's why it's like probably the most famous it was a three thousand pound marble sculpture and it shows like the title says the death of cleopatra depicting the moment popularized by the shakespearean play where she allows herself to be bitten by the snake and then after losing her crown the piece j.s graham wrote that cleopatra was the most remarkable piece of sculpture in the american section of the exposition And a lot of people were really shocked by, like, how it portrayed death. But it was seen by, like, thousands of people. It was, like, one of the most popular statues within the exhibition. In the statue, she actually adds, like, a very innovative twist. Because instead of portraying her as, like, a very refined, composed, Victorian-style woman, Uh she showed her as, like, a disheveled, inelegant manner. But she's dying, so it kind of makes sense to do that. Uh Which is very different from how a lot of people portrayed Cleopatra, especially we've talked about Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. And, like, the movies she's been in and how she's kind of seen as just, like, a sex symbol. And so to be able to just kind of portray her in a different way was really important. They also believe that there's a lot of, like, emancipation tones within it because she left out the slaves out of the scene that are usually shown because mm. Cleopatra had like slaves in the play. Yeah. And then also just compared to like a lot of white contemporaries, it's important to see hers because she was able to portray Cleopatra as mm-hmm. a female herself and of like a different race. As you can imagine, there's a lot of associations between Cleopatra and like a black African just because of the area, like Egypt yeah. and Africa aren't that far apart. So it makes more sense to have someone of African-American descent and a woman depict mm-hmm. Cleopatra than like a white man in Rome. So there's a lot more on this statue. It was placed into storage for a really long time and then it wasn't sold, but then it was acquired by a gambler mm. <laughs> who purchased it from a saloon and then used it to mark the grave of a racehorse named cleopatra (laughs) i was not expecting that (laughs) yeah me either and then it was in front of the grandstand of his harlem racetrack in the chicago suburb of forest park the -hmm. statue was there for a century until the land was bought by the u.s postal service then it was moved to a construction storage yard in illinois and then ended up receiving a lot of damage at the hand of boy scouts (laughs) of course (laughs) it just seems wild right (laughs) they ended up painting it and then causing other damage to it i i don't know why that happened but then a dentist who was a part of the forest park historical society acquired the sculpture and held it in private storage at the forest park mall and then (laughs) as an assistant professor at the writing program at mit and a curator of scholar and scholar of african-american art went searching for it when she was writing a biography of Lewis, ended up finding it 
and then contacted an African-American bibliographer, Dorothy Potter Wesley, and the two of them were able to gain the attention of the Smithsonian and put it finally <laughs> in a secure location within the yeah. Smithsonian. <laughs> wow. Um, the All Smithsonian over. actually spent $30,000 to try and restore it. Wow. Um, because it was outside for like a century and then just like moved around to a million places and destroyed by Boy Scouts and like held in the storage room at the mall. Like it wasn't in like a really great place. They did a ton of extensive repairs, including the nose, sandals, hands, chin, and extensive sugaring, which is like disintegration, I think, where they like get rid of dirt and grime buildup and everything. But yeah, so that's like her most famous and yet, wow, it went through a lot. But that's her. There's been like some kind of cool things. There's like a play written about her. There's like a center named after her at Oberlin College. There was a book of poetry that was released that wrote about her. She had a Google Doodle. Cool. <laughs> the honor of all of the women we cover mm-hmm. <laughs> at some point or another, they get a Google Doodle. <laughs> Literally. There's actually a juvenile biographical novel in verse written by Gianni Atkins about her. We talked about this recently, the Overlooked series in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. They also had an obituary for her. There's a best-selling novel that talks about Edmonia Lewis and Sarah Parker Redmond that's dedicated to Rome and the two figures. She's been featured as an artist in a video game and also has a stage play, like I mentioned, written about her just called Edmonia. And cool. she also had a U.S. postage stamp unveiled in her honor in 2022. Nice. So, yeah, she's had a lot of, like, post, post-humorous exhibitions and a few of her surviving works. But I'd still say, like, for the most part, like, she's pretty unknown when it comes yeah. to women in the arts, which is crazy for how famous she was. But we say that about everyone. Yeah, as, like, as tends to be the trend. <laughs> yeah. So that's Edmonia Lewis. There's a lot about her, and yet there's not a lot about her. It's kind of mm-hmm. one of those weird cases that we find every once in a while where it's just like, huh? It's almost like we just get straight facts. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, okay, I guess, but at the same time, I wish we had more of like her personal mm-hmm. story. But yeah, that's Edmonia Lewis. Well, I am happy that I now know about her. Amazing. Me too. Like we say every time, I will be posting pictures of her work. So definitely follow on the Instagram so you can see a lot of these. Amazing. With an art podcast, there's only so much justice we can do to the work itself. (laughs) When we summarize it, yeah. Yeah. But if you don't want to wait for the post, you can always just Google her name and look. And we will be back next Monday because we're here every Monday with another episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, share it. Leave us a rating and review. Tell us what you like about it. Send us a DM. Let us know what your favorite episode is. Oh, please do. That would be so fun. And then that, then we know what kind of content to plan for the future. So yeah. let us know what you like. Definitely. And we'll be back next week. Just a quick note at the end of the episode here. We usually do a monthly book episode. And this month we were planning on doing The Feminine Mystique. Because of a lot of things, <laughs> I'm sick. The air is tore. <laughs> Everything Damn. else that ended up happening in March. We didn't get to it. And we really love this book. So we want to like do it justice. 
mm-hmm. for an episode. So we're actually going to push it to the end of this month in April instead. We love the Feminine Mystique. It was like a major feminist awakening for both of us. So highly recommend like we've got a whole additional month for us <laughs> to read it now. Ready to go. So highly recommend you all grab a copy and read it. And then we'll have that episode come out at the end of April instead. Yes. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.